From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP Immediate Past President Sophia Thomas, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's official podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Cannabis, CBD, THC, Delta 8, synthetics. Our patients have questions and we should have informed evidence-based answers. It's so important that we as nurse practitioners feel empowered to discuss treatments and treatment alternatives in open and direct dialogue with our patients and that they feel comfortable talking about their use of cannabinoids in both therapeutic and recreational activities. Here today to unpack these issues and more is my friend, past member of the AANP Board of Directors and NP leader, Dr. Tracy Klein. Welcome to NP Pulse. Thank you, Sophia. Nice to be here. I'm so glad to have you with us, Tracy. You know, there's been so much buzz over the past few years as states move to legalize marijuana and the, really the value of medical marijuana has been recognized as an alternative in healthcare. And certainly ANP has been tracking laws around the states um, as states move to legalize marijuana. And really nurse practitioners are in the position to answer questions from patients, but also uh, in some states to be able to authorize these prescriptions in states that legalize it. And so I thought you have such expertise in this in this area and have spoken for A&P so many times uh, regarding um, medical cannabis. Uh, I'd love to have you come on and share more information with our listeners. So uh, first thing, I'd love for you to just introduce yourselves and, and tell our listeners who you are. Sure. Uh, I'm Tracy Klein. I'm a family nurse practitioner. I'm in Washington State, uh, but I also practice in Oregon State. And that's significant because both of those states are states that have legalized medical as well as what's now called adult use cannabis. So that's one reason that I became really interested in this topic. I teach pharmacology at Washington State University and found that there was a lot of, uh, a lot of questions and a lot of confusion that was coming up about cannabis, particularly in, in our states where both types are legal. Okay. And so, again, you've got the expertise, so I think let's let's just get started. I think, you know, first of all, there's a differentiation. People, you know, hear medical marijuana, they hear CBD. There's a lot of even just terminology that I think we need to kind of get straight. Could you start with that? Sure. I can uh, give it a try. <laughs> uh, in terms of Cannabis 101, um, Cannabis is referring to the cannabis plant, and the cannabis plant has cannabinoids in it, which are the active ingredients in the plant cannabis. There's probably at least a hundred or more. They're being discovered all the time, but the ones that we're most familiar with are CBD and THC. And when we talk about THC, that's called properly Delta 9 THC. You're going to hear a little bit about Delta-8 THC, too, so we may talk about that if there are some questions, because that's not the same thing as the THC that um, either would be used medically or would be purchased in a dispensary or in a medical setting. 
CBD, as you are probably aware, is a different component um, that comes from the hemp plant. Um, it can come from the cannabis plant generally. The same cannabis plant as THC, but the concentrations are um, different legally. And that's a confusing area, so I apologize if I've just made it more confusing. But let's just say that THC primarily is thought of as the psychoactive ingredient, and that acts on receptors in the brain and spinal cord and in some of the periphery, whereas CBD acts um, most directly on the CB2 receptors, and that helps um, mitigate central nervous effects of CB1 activation by THC. And that's why we use CBD alone and in combination with THC. And so for you, as we're having this conversation, uh, what would you say is, you know, CBD, THC, where should we start out in this discussion? So I think it's important to understand that they're very different things. Exactly. And that THC is very strongly and strictly regulated whereas CBD currently is not and is something that can be purchased um, over the counter in the majority of states. So if we're talking in a medical setting, um, we're probably talking about a patient coming to us and asking if we can authorize THC for them because they've already been able to buy CBD and try it out on their own um, in most states from you know, what might be a reputable source but what might also be an internet or a grocery store or a place um, where you can't be clear what they're a gas getting, station. right? I mean, people are buying it at gas or a gas yeah. station. Yep. So the first conversation we need to have with our patients is kind of uh, basic. What are what are you taking and where are you getting it from? <laughs> I think that's a good place to start. And um, then to be clear that if a patient is coming to you for a medical authorization of THC. The THC isn't always the right solution to a medical problem. There are a lot of patients who are taking THC without medical authorization, using it, you know, recreationally or or using it feeling like they're using it medically appropriately for symptoms. Um, but they're using it for things like anxiety and depression, for which it really has not been shown helpful and sometimes can make those conditions worse. So that's why it's really important, even if we think that we would not authorize THC or you know, talk to patients about recommending CBD, that we still have the conversation about what they're taking and where they can get reputable information. And and so for, um, there are different uses. You mentioned a THC can sometimes make anxiety worse. And, and so can we go over the, the uses of THC versus CBD? Um, again, realizing that a lot of patients are taking it unbeknownst to us. I mean, we could have patients in our clinic uh, every day that are using these products. And unless they disclose it, we would have no idea. Yep. Well, I think the easiest way to think about it is um, by sort of splitting it into three different categories, type 1, type 2, and type 3. And type 1 uh, products are products that are very high in THC. They're THC predominant. And those are products that might be used for things um, like uh, certain types of pain. Because remember, THC is active in the brain and the spinal cord. So there is evidence that higher, C, higher THC products, even though they have a potential to be you know, sedating and have some psychoactive effects, can also be really effective for certain types of uh, centrally caused pain. There's moderate to high evidence for that. There's also high evidence um, 
for use of THC with some conditions like um, MS spasticity. Although, again, because those patients have a lot of other symptoms that are um, being affected by their condition, you might want a more balanced product, which is a type 2 product. Type 2 products balance the amount of THC and CBD. And remember I said I think the CBD helps um, lower some of the side effects, potentially the psychoactive side effects of the THC. So that's why a patient might want to take something that's a type 2 that helps with, for example, that chronic pain or MS spasticity, but they want to really minimize any kind of psychoactive effects. There will still be some because there's still THC in the product, but those might be thought of as more beneficial effects like, you know, sleep or, or appetite um, being affected positively for a and patient. The, so these type 2 products, I'm sorry to interrupt you, the type 2 products are mm-hmm. not the ones that people would be buying um, over the counter at stores because there is some THC That's still right. there. Yep. The type 3 products are high CBD products, and those are things that could be either from a dispensary where it's a very high CBD um, product but low in THC but still some THC there, or a product that just has CBD in it. Uh, Some people call that a type 3 product, and some people refer to that um, as a different type to signify that it's THC Free. free. But you know, again, just to kind of go over it, type 1 is high THC, type 2 is balanced, type 3 is high CBD. And if you think of it that way, I think that's a simple way to break it down for patients and start having a conversation about what they're taking and, and why they think that they are um, using cannabis for, for medical symptoms. And so let's talk about the medical symptoms now. Um, you know, you mentioned chronic pain. That would be... Um, is that would be a THC product or would you want somebody to balance it out with some CBD? So to be most effective for uh, a chronic uh, non-cancer pain or a neuropathic pain, um, products need to have enough THC to affect the central cause of the pain. Um, So that's kind of how that affects a person is different from person to person. So I would say, um, and this is a very broad generalization, that either a type 1 or a type 2 product might be effective for that patient. Um, There are other things, though, like epilepsy and seizure disorders, for example, that we know now there is a prescription CBD-only product, Epidiolex, and there's no uh, good evidence that a THC product um, or, or putting the THC in the product would be helpful for something like epilepsy or seizure disorder. That's a straight, CBD. plain CBD product. And so those seizure patients might be buying the CBD over the counter for their to help control their seizures as well. Yes, and the problem with doing that is that that will not be in the concentrations that the prescription requires is allowing. Yeah. yeah. So um, the patients might be helped by it, um, and they could even have seizure reduction. But because the management of seizures is so individual and so variable depending upon you know, many different factors, you really want somebody with seizures to not be having different levels of a medication. Mm-hmm. A prescription thing for somebody with seizures is probably a better idea 
which is not to say that it's not an expensive thing, which is why, you know, patients do seek out CBD products in the dispensaries. But those are expensive too. They're not covered by insurance. So at least with something like, you know, Epidiolex or um, the prescription product, they have a chance of getting that covered by their insurance. And they know what they're getting. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, is CBD scheduled? CBD is not scheduled federally. Um, and that's confusing for people, too, because remember, the federal government creates the you know broad standards across the United States, and states can be more strict. They typically can't be a lot less strict than the federal government, although one could argue that when medical marijuana started, there was a real conflict between what the federal government said and what the states were saying. Um, but in the case of CBD, the simplest example would be Idaho, who is still has said that CBD products, even though the federal government says they're okay to sell, is not okay to sell or use in Idaho. And that's specifically related to CBD products, because I know the federal government yep. has not legalized THC products. That's right. There's still a Schedule One drug, and it, it, it will be interesting to see what happens in the next couple of years as the states have legalized cannabis. Um, there's still you know, some conflict with the federal government around cannabis and cannabis use, but since more states are authorizing medical cannabis, the federal government has really been taking the stance lately that they're more interested in people who are selling, you know, scheduled drugs illicitly um and they're also interested in preventing abuse by minors exactly and and that's an important reason to um at least support some type of medical cannabis use in a state because that allows regulation of cannabis and its distribution and it helps um protect minors by having some requirements around labeling and distribution of cannabis that doesn't exist in other states where it's just, um, you know, on the black market. Exactly. Well, and, and when it's regulated, you know what you're getting. And a lot of these uh, children now are getting things laced with other products and um, some of the synthetic products. Um, speak to some of the synthetics that are out there. Uh, I can speak to it a little bit. Synthetics are kind of a, a, a tricky thing because um, many synthetic drugs or synthetic cannabinoid products um, started out maybe as a, a potential investigatory drug. There's one that I'm thinking of in particular that was a considered a legitimate investigatory drug in clinical trials. Didn't work out for that particular condition um, was not pursued as a prescription drug by the pharmaceutical company and meantime people got a hold of the process to make that into a synthetic cannabinoid and the reason that that is so dangerous is that it can be you know 200 to 400 times stronger in terms of its binding to those those cb1 those receptors in the brain so there's some really significant side effects that can occur for patients um, when they use a synthetic product. And the synthetic products are typically um, powdered and uh, might be uh, sprayed and dried on a product um, that looks like cannabis. 
that smokes like cannabis, um, but it has a synthetic laced in it, and that can be really, really harmful. That's a major concern for poison centers across the United States. Yeah, I had a patient who had used a, a synthetic cannabis um, product and was having severe paranoia um, when they came into my mm-hmm. office, and they they'd actually used it a couple weeks before. Wow. And did they know they had used it? Because that's the other thing. There certainly are people who use it intentionally because they, you know, are curious or or maybe that's what they have access to. But there's also people who use it unintentionally. This is this was just a teen that thought they were, you know, going to going to smoke. And uh, and that's what they say is that if you ask a teenager now if they smoke, their assumption is you're talking about marijuana. They're not talking about tobacco. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And I've also had patients say, um, you know, if you ask them about smoking a product that they don't smoke because they're vaping it. And <laughs> vaping vaping isn't, isn't the same as smoking. Exactly. <laughs> or using a vaporizer for cannabis or dabbing um, cannabis, which is, you know, uh, taking a very high concentrate cannabis and, and putting it on a on a ring that you can then, you know, smoke it in very high concentrations of THC. Mm-hmm. And it's important to know the the language and the lingo that people are using when they're when they're talking about these products. So, I mean, educating ourselves as providers is, is probably the first and foremost thing we need to do by understanding the products, but also understanding the recreational use um, as we see patients in our office, in addition to considering the fact that in some states, nurse practitioners might be prescribing these products for specific uh, medical conditions. Well, it's been a real interesting, um, eye-opening experience to be uh, educating myself because, remember, I started doing this as I was teaching pharmacology in a state where it was legal for nurse practitioners to authorize cannabis. And I thought, you know, I really want to try to put some education out here for them about, you know, drug-drug interactions, metabolism, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, all that stuff that we learn in pharmacology. And I found that the majority of the information that was out there was um, either from consumer-based websites or from the industry. And that that was very challenging. Um, the healthcare professionals at the time that I talked to really didn't know anything about it and kind of... Um, I would say they, they didn't want to really associate themselves with people who did know about it. Those were healthcare practitioners, kind of like, um, you know, pain management has become in some states mm-hmm. that, um, you know, we could maybe refer somebody to someone to talk about it, but we don't really want to talk to that practitioner and we don't really want to deal with those patients. Yeah, there's a stigma. So, yeah, so there really wasn't a lot of avenue to find good information about cannabis. And what I've been able to do in the past year is uh, enroll in a program through the University of Maryland College of Pharmacy that's a specific program, a master's degree in the College of Pharmacy in medical cannabis science and, and therapeutics. So that's pretty exciting to be able to actually be taught by pharmacists about the medical use of cannabis and also really get into some of the plant um you know, the botany and the organic chemistry and all the stuff that we haven't revisited for mm-hmm. a while. So it's a, it's a good challenge. And uh, I think it helps prepare us a little bit better for uh, those conversations with our patients. 
as a result of that, Sophia, just again, a shout out to AANP and for allowing me to do a continuing education module um, and distribute it to nurse practitioners. When I first approached a friend of mine who is a pharmacist about doing this, we were told by several different organizations that they would not accredit a continuing education module around cannabis, that that was just too risky because of the federal status for them to do even though we made it really clear that we were a pharmacist and a nurse practitioner and we wanted to, you know, provide good, solid evidence-based information. So we've gone from that two years ago to being able to distribute that CE through ANP, who was happy to help share our CE module, um, to now being asked to present our continuing education to all of the pharmacists and to large healthcare systems here on the West Coast. That's amazing. And that's great. You know, we all need that that education. And certainly A&P several years ago um, developed a policy on, on medical cannabis. And um, you were very involved in that as well. Yes, I think it's important for people to know that their organization supports, you know, the scope of practice for nurse practitioners. You know, we we legally have the ability, as you mentioned, to authorize cannabis now in multiple states. I think it's 15 or so when I last um, did an evaluation. Actually, I'm sorry, it's, it's, uh, it looks like it's about 18 now. Right. So quite a few states where nurse practitioners can be the authorizing person, and even if they're not, um, they still have patients who may want to talk to them about cannabis or ask them questions. Absolutely. And in our show notes, um, we're going to include some links for our educational modules as well. Um, as well right. as, you know, I think you've written some articles, haven't you? Um, we have. Uh, there's one that is on Medscape that I wrote with um, Carolyn Bubert, who's an attorney nurse practitioner. And that is a nice overview of uh, at least as of this year, current law around nurse practitioner practice specifically and cannabis. Um, so that's an accessible article as well as the CE module that I've done for AANP on cannabis. We're also doing a three-month uh, follow-up of people who completed that module to see what they actually did with that information in practice. And that is a pending publication in the journal uh, Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research. Right. And so let's get back to, to cannabis. Um, you had mentioned the Delta. Um, go into that more uh, for me. Uh, uh, Delta-8 is a weaker agonist of those CB1 receptors that I talked mm -hmm. to you about. Um, so it's currently not extensively regulated. It's, it is um, very possible for people to make Delta-8 um, you know, legitimately uh, in a lab. So this doesn't have to be a black market kind of thing. Um, you can test for it. So if they do a test of a product, it will show you the percentage of Delta-8 and Delta-9 and CBD and so forth in a product. So in that regard, Delta-8 is, is a, I guess, a legitimate variant of Delta-9. But the problem with that is that it, is kind of a loophole in terms of regulation. The federal and the state regulations that talk about cannabis specifically talk about Delta-9 and not Delta-8. And so what that means is that Delta-8 can be sold without some of the labeling and packaging requirements. 
that you have for Delta 9, even though it's still psychoactive, it still can have all those effects that we talked about with THC. Weaker technically, but um, you know, the potency for when I say weaker could be 80% versus 100% for some mm-hmm. patients. So if, if that's a negative side effect for you, um, you're not going to care if you're, you know, getting an 80% negative side effect or 100%. It's not going to feel good. And is this a level one um, in the three levels that you talked about or the three groups? It would be um, probably, but I don't know that because it's a little bit weaker than the THC. You typically think of the type one products More as pure. Really high in THC. Yeah. So um, I bet they'll probably make a whole different category to address something like a Delta 8 once people figure out, you know, what the best way is to go about incorporating it into any kind of a medical recommendation. We just don't have that information right now. But it's being used recreationally right now, correct? It is. That's correct. I think you may have even said this. I think it's sometimes called weed light. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's one of the terms that we've heard, um, you know, because it's being promoted as, well, it's kind of like THC, but it just doesn't get you as as high. Um, but remember, just like THC, maybe not getting you just as high can poison a child or, you know, can cause some really significant side effects for patients, particularly if they have any kind of pre-existing, you know, anxiety, depression, psychosis, or other types of mental uh, health disorders. So I think it's important for people to understand that there are um, different types of THC out there that, that patients are using. And we definitely mm-hmm. need to get educated um, to understand, uh, you know, THC versus CBD, what are the effects? Um, but also understand um, that there's a lot of information out there on the medical conditions that vary state by state, if I'm not correct, that C- yep. that THC mm-hmm. can be used for. Um so as far as the, the, the medical THC, what would you say are, are the top, mm-hmm. you know, five, six conditions that, you, that you're seeing that are um, kind of generalizable across the country that it's being used for? Um, that's a really interesting question because, um, of course, it probably varies depending on the population and state by state. But study after study has said that the number one reason that patients are using cannabis um, you know, whether it's high THC or balanced THC, CBD, is for pain of some sort. And um, chronic pain, you know, we talked about the fact that neuropathy and chronic pain has some evidence to support it. But musculoskeletal pain, for example, you know, back pain, which was like a number three use um, in a pretty large survey that was done in Texas in the last year, it really doesn't have great evidence for musculoskeletal type of pain. Um, patients use, you know, cannabis generally for sleep. And um, again, that's a real variable thing with THC because THC is affecting your brain. And, you know, we all know how sleeping disorders and brain activity are related to each other. So, you know, maybe THC, like a glass of wine or two, makes somebody fall asleep, but it might not make them stay asleep or have good quality sleep. 
there's a little bit better supporting evidence for CBD alone as being helpful for patients um, with insomnia. There's also some good evidence um, for treatment of something like... Uh, you mentioned anxiety. Yeah, anxiety, I would say, is not a THC uh, that, treatable yeah, that's, that's condition. A CBD. Yeah. But, but there is some CBD. There, there are some small studies about use of CBD for anxiety. I can tell you anecdotally that lots and lots of patients are using it for anxiety, both for themselves and for their pets, uh -huh. and it's very successful. Um, but the studies are super minimal and small, and a lot. And the the most broadly uh, cited study, because it's a controlled, you know, randomized trial study, was really done on social anxiety, which is a little bit yeah. different. Um, social anxiety, you know, you could prescribe a propranolol ten milligrams to your patient for that. Um, the CBD that was used in that study, and it did work was 600 milligrams so you know to, to get, get to give you perspective yeah. you can yeah, have a 10 milligram I mean, propanolol versus 600 milligrams of cbd well 600 milligrams of cbd um like what somebody would buy in a store typically um for just you know sleep or whatever would be something like a 25 milligram mm -hmm. cbd if that gives you any perspective so I'm sure that 600 milligrams of CBD did something to someone's social anxiety, <laughs> sure. but I guess I'm not sure that I would take that, even though it was a good quality trial, as uh, as guiding my medical recommendations. Absolutely, I might try some other options. Well, first. and I think it's important to note that that you know all these conditions that you've discussed, there are uh, uh, FDA approved medications that have been studied and randomized placebo control studies to treat these conditions. Um, now, certainly there are retractable conditions or um, uh, intractable, sorry, that um, maybe a person wants to, to give CBD a try because, you know, whatever whatever they've tried so far doesn't seem to be working. And perhaps that's what, you know, a majority of people are doing, that they've they've tried their, you know, other products and, and didn't seem to help. So um, why not give CBD a shot? Yeah, and I think... Uh I, I guess I have to say I misspoke. I just looked at my notes and it was 400 milligrams of CBD for the social anxiety. Oh. But you still get the picture exactly. of 25 is, is what we're you know selling in the stores, what 400 would do. Um, I, I think that's a good point that you made. I think, you know, the idea that we want to uh, do no harm and we want to provide alternatives for patients who are maybe having some significant side effects from, you know, prescription medications really is what led to some of the um, studies and approvals of cannabis-based medications or, um, you know, pharmaceutically produced cannabis mm -hmm. uh, THC-type medications for things like, you know, chemotherapy-induced nausea and for increasing appetite. You know, these were things that were tested on patients who had cancer, who had some really bad side effects, potentially on pharmaceutical medications. Uh -huh. And they do yeah. work. And that's and that's a good point. They they, they do work. So, um, Tracy, we've got to wrap up and I, I hate to wrap this up because I think it's such a fascinating conversation. But, you know, before we go, leave me with three things that you would want our practicing nurse practitioners to know um, as they listen to this podcast. 
So first, I would like uh, the nurse practitioners to understand clearly what the laws are in their state. I think that people either over-interpret or under-interpret the law. They either are so cautious, they think, oh, you know, I'm never going to talk to a patient about cannabis because I might get in trouble, you know, or they say, oh, this is a legal state, so I can recommend it for anything mm -hmm. I want. And that's just not the case. As you pointed out, there are medical conditions that are written into law. So in most states, nurse practitioners need to know what they exactly. are. The second thing I would say is it's important to ask your patients what they're doing. Um, you know, ask them in a very routine, um, non-emotional, non-judgmental way, you know, just like you would take a history about any medications um, that a patient's using. You know, are you using cannabis? How do you use cannabis? Where do you get your cannabis from? Those are pretty simple questions that can help guide you a little bit to having a further conversation. And I guess the final thing that I would say is that it's important to know for nurse practitioners what legitimate sources are for good information about cannabis. And as part of this podcast, we will be providing some links and some resources that that you can access to help you feel more confident in having that conversation with your patients. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Tracy Klein, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a great conversation. And I'd like to have you come back as you progress on through your uh, your cannabis university. Um, and as you get more information, I think it's fascinating. This isn't going away. This is a topic that's only going to become um, more and more frequently heard as more and more states look to legalize um, medical marijuana and uh, cannabis. So thank you so much for joining us here on NP Pulse. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tracy. It's always so informative speaking with you. To our listeners, if you want to be part of your National Professional Association and add your voice to 119,000 of your NP colleagues nationwide, I urge you to become an AANP member. Along with the topical member benefits linked to this episode's description, AANP provides advocacy for nurse practitioners and our patients, fighting for critical issues like full and direct access to care, equity in payment, and changes to outdated laws and regulations. Please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm.